Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Have you ever looked at your blood work results and wondered what all the different markers actually mean? Well, there's a good chance that the blood work you got isn't really telling the story about your health anyways, and there are more important markers for you to pay attention to. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And today, Jen Maleka is here to help us sort out confusing information around blood work. She will be sharing what lab tests are actually important and what to do with the information you receive about your health. So let's jump into my conversation with Jen. Jen Maleka supports busy, health-minded professionals in taking back control of their health by giving them access to the right lab tests and resources so they can find the missing pieces of their health puzzle and actually fix what is wrong and get back to feeling like themselves again. Thank you for coming on to the show, Jen. Thanks for having me, Brian. I'm excited to be here. Of course. And I know that you, um, you know, you were a trainer for a long time and then you got into functional diagnostic nutrition and all that stuff. So can you give us a uh, just a brief background about yourself? What got you into the industry and what got you um, so excited about diving deeper into health? Sure. I've always kind of been fascinated with like, I would say fitness and health. Like I was the kid that was out playing baseball and bike riding in the middle of the street until the sun went down <laughs> growing up. So always super active and um, you know, went into college thinking I was going to become a sports psychologist, which kind of led me down this road of personal training because you get your undergraduate in kinesiology and then you move on to get a master's in sports psychology. And about halfway through my undergraduate, I just decided that athletic training and pre-physical therapy wasn't really where I wanted to go. And maybe sports psychology wasn't that pursuit either, which led me to personal training. And I did that for quite some time, like ran some bigger box gyms and through that whole time period, like especially in college is when I really started to notice that I was accumulating like what I would call health issues now. Back then, I kind of wrote them off as just being in my 20s and being run down and drinking too much or eating crappy food. And when I look back on it, it was really the beginning stages of, you know, my body kind of starting to talk to me and tell me that there was some dysfunction that was happening. So I started suffering from seasonal allergies that I had never had before and having moved from Northern California, where there's a lot more pollen and crops to Southern California, that didn't really compute in my mind either. And then when I was around the age of 24, I was diagnosed with skin cancer. And here I was like a personal trainer practicing everything that I learned in college about, you know, calories in versus calories out, eating healthy, exercising all the time. And I was slapped with this skin cancer diagnosis and there, you know, I was not, um, a avid like sunbather or suntan or anything like that. I didn't have any family history of cancer in my um, that would have related to this at all. So that really inspired me to explore like what was going on with my body internally. On top of that, I was feeling exhausted all the time. Like I would go get a double Americano from Starbucks in the afternoon and be struggling to keep my eyes awake when I was training my clients. And I was like, there's just something that's not right here. And I started noticing these things about my training clients as well. You know, they were counting their calories like crazy. They were doing extra cardio and they weren't losing weight like the whole equation was supposed to equate to. And they were often feeling fatigued and and sick and getting injured. And I just really started to question everything that I learned. And randomly, 
landed across a webinar that Reed Davis did, and he's the founder of Functional Diagnostic Nutrition, which is in the program that I eventually went through to do the work that I do now. And when I heard him talk about you know, the actual physiological aspects of health and adrenal dysfunction and bacterial overgrowth in the intestines and liver congestion and hormone imbalances. It was like the light bulb went on. And I just knew that these are probably a lot of the missing pieces that I had been looking for because I was the picture of perfect health, according to my doctors. Like I would go into my annual physicals and my blood work would always look perfect on paper. And they would like give me a pat on the back for being such a like, avid exerciser and doing all those things, but I didn't feel that way. And when I went through this program and did this training, you do some of the lab testing on yourself. I definitely found that I had adrenal dysfunction going on. I had H. pylori bacteria um, overgrowth in my gut. My liver was congested. I had really high oxidative stress. So putting all of those pieces of the puzzle together, it made sense how I was like cultivating cancer in my body and why I was feeling the way that I was feeling. So Working through that program, I resolved all of those health issues. And then that's basically what I help people do now is get their hands on those functional lab tests and find those missing pieces as well. And then strategically help them make lifestyle changes that are actually going to support the health outcomes that, that they truly desire. It's interesting that you brought up that the blood work that you were getting before, it looked perfect on paper. Uh, which definitely leads into the uh, this entire conversation because we're going to be talking about how some of the blood work that is typically run might not be the best blood work. And then also the ranges, there can be issues with the ranges. So can you start talking about um, why the common blood tests that are run might not be the best options for people to yeah. actually you know, figure out health? Right. So first of all, when we go and get blood work done, especially at your annual physical, they're running a very like minimal panel, maybe something that's looking at the lipid profile. So like total cholesterol, right? HDL, LDL, uh, triglycerides. Occasionally you might get some glucose numbers on there. You really don't get a full blood chemistry panel in most of your annual physicals. So you're just getting this snapshot of some of those markers. And those markers are really used to evaluate um, clinical conditions, you know, like when we have high, higher cholesterol numbers or blood pressure, for example, like the doctors are looking for clinical conditions like heart disease risk, for example, or heart attack risk or something like that. They're not necessarily looking for where do you feel at your optimum? And so that is the shift in perspective that we want to take initially is, you know, there are on any test that you run out there, there's going to be quote, these lab reference ranges, um, or what they call normal reference ranges. And normal reference ranges are never assessed based on optimal levels, necessarily, like where are you going to feel optimally, they're usually evaluated based on the average highs and lows that are coming into the lab, and oftentimes evaluated based on sick, sick people's blood results. So I kind of just intermingled some information there, going back to you know, the typical blood tests that you're getting, even if you get something that's expanded in a blood panel where now you're getting like maybe your hormones tested, um, you're getting other markers tested like HbA1c or C-reactive protein to look at inflammation. Again, those are typically used to look for a clinic. They're looking for clinical signs and clinical diagnosis. It's not necessarily used to evaluate your overall health. So I'll use 
uh, CRP, C-reactive protein, as an example. They use C-reactive protein to evaluate inflammation. So if we see C-reactive protein is elevated, that indicates that there's inflammation happening, but we don't know exactly why it's happening. So what would happen in a lot of those cases is a doctor might say, well, let's put you on an anti-inflammatory without asking the question of, where is it coming from? It, can we isolate it to somewhere? And is it chronic or is it actually just acute and circumstantial? So something like C-reactive protein could be acute and circumstantial versus when we do something like, I love to use a saliva or a urine test to evaluate um, cortisol levels, then we can look at chronic stress and inflammation. So that gives us a broader picture of like, how long has this been going on for? What is the depth of dysfunction that's happening here? And then when we pair that with maybe something like I do a, a GI, it's called the GI map stool sample test from Diagnostic Solutions, that measures calprotectin, which is an inflammatory marker for the intestinal lining. Now we've able, now we've been able to isolate inflammation to actually a specific location. And then we can start to investigate a little bit more clearly well, what's contributing to the inflammation in the intestinal lining? Is it food sensitivities? Is it bacteria, parasite, yeast overgrowth? And then we can more clearly address the health issues by implementing strategies to clear those things up, right? So whenever I run, you know, sometimes clients will come to me and they'll have a CBC panel, which is a short for blood chemistry panel, um, comprehensive blood chemistry. You know, they'll run that with a doctor, other blood tests. Um, where occasionally I might run one myself because I, I am curious about HbA1c and glucose specifically to look at like insulin resistance factors. Um, whatever clues are gleamed off of some of those blood tests always point back to let's now run some functional lab tests to understand why the blood markers look that way, right? What is causing them to be out of balance? Um, another differentiator is with hormones. So Cortisol has a rhythm throughout the day. And I've often heard people say, well, I got my cortisol tested and it ends up that it was through a blood test. And because cortisol has a rhythm throughout the day, measuring it at one point in time is not giving you the full picture. In order to really see the full picture of cortisol, rhythm, which relates to your circadian rhythm and the natural rhythm of the body, we want to do at least a four-point test throughout the day to see what it looks like when you wake up, couple hours after waking, what it looks like in the afternoon, and then what it looks like in the evening time. So you're obviously not going to do a blood test four times a day. You're not going to sit in the lab all day and get your blood drawn at every point in time. That's where doing like a saliva or a urine test is much more realistic. And on top of that, the saliva or the urine samples actually show us real-time values versus a blood test is like the byproduct. So it's like, you know, what's left over and what's already used. It's not the real-time value. So we want that urine test um, in there. And then similarly for testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone levels, the, um, the type of hormone that you're looking at on a blood test is usually bound hormone. So it's not necessarily like available for use versus when we test hormones using saliva or urine, we're able to see active available um, hormones, which can give us a whole other insight as to what is the physiology of the body and those aspects collectively working together, basically. Interesting. So if if someone's coming to you and they've never or they don't have any recent blood work, do you do like a, a 
basic amount of blood work first just to kind of get an idea of which direction to start taking them? Or do you start throwing the stool samples, the uh, uh, saliva, urine samples, all that stuff at them right off the uh, right out of the gates? I definitely start with the functional testing. And mostly because like I said, the blood work usually just directly relates back to, okay, we need to run these functional tests now to understand on a physiological level what's happening. And so if they have blood work that they bring to me, that's great. But in the training that I've received, you know, we've been taught how to um, form an impression about somebody. So you kind of do this like in-depth history taking, you have a different way of looking at disease and how you assess somebody. So you start to understand the workings of the physiological aspects. And you, I mean, I can a lot of times predict like, oh, you're going to have high cholesterol because there's so much inflammation and and dysfunction that's going on from these functional tests. It, It doesn't surprise me to see that information necessarily. So in order to to quickly get to like the core of the problem, I think go direct to those functional lab tests so that we can actually start working on the healing opportunities. Right. That makes sense. So, um, Kind of like what you were mentioning, uh, the difference between taking uh, saliva samples for hormones throughout the day and taking um, just one blood sample. So if I had my blood work done today and it's just taking a snapshot at that moment in time, could my blood work be different tomorrow? Totally. Mm. (laughs) Your thyroid values can actually change by the minute. Wow. Yeah. So one of the other approaches that I use that I've been trained on is actually to not treat the test results, treat the person. And so sometimes we get test results that look terrible, but the person actually feels fine, right? So do we want to go chasing rabbit holes and spending money on supplements and therapies and all that stuff if they're actually feeling okay? Like maybe it was just a bad day for testing. And then on the other side of that is what I think most peri- people experience is that their test results will come back looking normal and they feel terrible. And so we don't want to just take that piece of paper for what it's word, what it says, you know, like it's word, we want to continue to explore. And some examples of this would be like, I'm actually an example of this. When I test my, my cortisol levels, my metabolized cortisol is pretty low, but my 24 hour free cortisol, like the way that I utilize cortisol throughout the day is actually really healthy. And so you know, ideally we want metabolized cortisol in this like optimal range. And I can tell you that even with low metabolized cortisol, I feel better than I've ever felt in my entire life. Like I joke with the clinical consultants about this. Sometimes I'm like, if I actually had normal levels of metabolized cortisol, I feel like I would be bouncing off the walls because I already have so much energy you know, with just low metabolized cortisol, I can even imagine what that would be like. And then another example would be like, I've, I've done stool sample tests on clients. And, you know, these, uh, I had a client, she was having a lot of digestive issues, bloating, um, stuff that was just going on that would that made us highly suspect that there was some kind of parasites, bacteria, yeast overgrowth that was going on. And we did one stool sample test that actually came back fairly clean. So it's like, okay, it looks clean. Let's go ahead and get you started on just a general cleansing protocol for the gut. And within 10 days of doing that, she started having even more severe kind of symptoms that like kind of strongly correlated with this H. pylori bacteria that I mentioned earlier. And so we ran a different type of stool sample test and sure enough, we picked up that H. pylori. So 
And the difference in the stool sample test was like, it was one was a microscopy test and one was like a PCR test for the listeners out there that might be curious of what I'm talking about. But that just goes to show that like what one test might tell you, you don't want to necessarily like rule out for that client based on how they're feeling. And maybe you need to continue your investigation based upon what they're telling you, you know? Right. Yeah. If if it was just based off of lab tests then you wouldn't be where you are because you felt good. Right. Or you didn't you didn't feel good, but your lab test said that you should be good. Right. Right. But you not feeling good is what led you to diving deeper and deeper and trying to figure all this out. Yeah, exactly. And I would say that so many of the people that I work with, like they have that innate knowing also where they're like, something just isn't right. You know, like I say that, you know, your body better than any doctor or book or whatever else you're, you know, researching out there. And if there's this innate knowing that there's just something that's not right, or that's wrong, you want to continue to pursue that. And it just might be a matter of finding the right person or the like right lab tests or resources to finally figure out what that is, but we know ourselves best. And, you know, I didn't finish telling the second half of my health story, but there was after I got myself better into this place of feeling really good, we um, unknowingly had toxic mold in our home. And so my health started actually declining again, really slowly over a period of time. I started putting on weight and having all these hormone issues. And I was in my early 30s. And a lot of people just kept telling me, well, like, maybe it's your hormone shifting, you're in your 30s now. And I was like, this is I know my body like this just isn't right, you know, and I even I went to one of the top women's health specialists here in San Diego. And she had the audacity to say like, well, maybe you just put on 15 pounds of muscle. And I was like, do you know how hard it is for women to put on muscle? I mean, I used to be a fitness competitor and I was like lucky to gain two pounds of muscle after six weeks of intense training. Like it's not easy for us like it is for guys. Um, but it's that innate knowing, like I was just, I knew something wasn't right with my body and I wasn't going to accept that it was just a factor of aging. Cause I could just tell that that wasn't what it was, you know? Right. And, uh, you talked a little bit about, you know, the standard ranges of, uh, tests and how, um, you know, it's encompassing sick people and healthy people. And that standard range doesn't really tell you much except for when you get to the extremes, then it's like, oh, now we have big problems. Right. Right. So, um, and then you mentioned more of an optimal range. How are those optimal ranges figured out? Yeah. So the optimal ranges are really looking at where, where are the ranges when people are functioning at their best? So um, we'll take like thyroid hormone, for example. So oftentimes when you're getting your thyroid assessed, what they're testing is TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. So conventional ranges are really wide. It's like 0.5 all the way to 4.5. So again, they're looking at that, like when does it get to that clinical diagnosis of hypo or hyperthyroidism versus comparatively functional range, like that optimal range is between one and two. That's a huge difference, right? And so when you go, if you were to go work with a naturopathic doctor or a functional medicine doctor, they're going to be more looking, looking more closely at that functional range of TSH. And when you start to cross that line of, you know, two um, for your TSH, and along with the other picture, uh, the bigger picture, what's going on with the rest of the hormones, then they would actually consider you hypothyroidism. And, uh, antibodies or autoimmunity is another really great example of this. So what most people don't know is that there's actually 
an autoimmune scale. And on the lower end of the scale, um, the definition of that is like you have one symptom that occurs like one to two times a week or something like that. And then as you move up the scale, it's an accumulation of symptoms that start to happen more frequently. Well, in conventional, this, you know, um, work, they're not going to diagnose you until you're on the extreme of the scale. So how does that relate to reference ranges? So in functional reference ranges, let's take thyroid antibodies again, like we evaluate um, thyroid peroxidase or TGAB, you know, we're looking at reference ranges that are like somewhere around zero to 20 or zero to like 40. On conventional standards, they're looking for antibodies, thyroid antibodies to be over in the hundreds before they would clinically diagnose. That's a huge difference, right? So that's where you can see that you're you could be on the spectrum, like you could have maybe 20 antibodies that are hanging out over here that are like letting uh, the signal, like letting the, you know that there's an autoimmune process that's starting to cultivate that you can get under control right now. And this could be something that's producing some of those like in kind of infrequent or mild symptoms that you're having versus, you know, clinical diagnosis would be full on like antibodies are in the hundred. I feel terrible. It's hard for me to get through the day. Like I, you know, I feel like crap all the time. Well, where do we want to be? We want to be in that optimal stage. Like we really don't want any antibodies if possible. And so those are some of the examples of just differences in those reference ranges to be looking for. And it's great because you catch stuff earlier. Yeah. Right. If you're waiting until the antibodies are in the hundreds and they're feeling completely terrible by that point, if you can catch that early when it's at 20 or 40 or somewhere in that range, then you can help them out so much better. Instead yeah. of having that long treatment recovery process of them once they get to that clinical diagnosis uh, phase. Yeah, exactly. It's like more untangling that you have to do to reverse the dysfunction that's been happening for a period of time. And the body, you know, is it's the body. It's very fascinating. Like the best way to describe it is practice makes perfect, right? So when you learn how to ride a bike or you learn how to hit a baseball, the more that you practice, the more that you perfected it. Our body does that too, because it's always looking for the path of least resistance. And But it can get stuck like that in the disease state also, where it's just, it's easier to be on the attack and inflamed all the time. And then it's like having PTSD essentially. So you know, when we're like with thyroid antibodies, gluten is one of the triggers for thyroid antibodies. So maybe initially it started by you eating gluten and then the body got so um, overwhelmed and on the attack. Now, anything that looks like re remotely resembles gluten, like corn or rice or those other things that start attack, it starts attacking those things. And then when you like, you can like remove those things out. But if you come in contact with them again, it's like PTSD, your body's like, wait, what is that thing? It's back in here. And it just re-triggers the response, you know? So it is true that once, if you can catch it sooner, if we're really evaluating these more functional ranges, we can catch things quicker and reverse them quicker, which was kind of the scenario with me, this, this whole mold thing actually triggered Hashimoto's for me and thyroid antibodies. And I was able to reverse that in six months. And I've been in remission ever since because I caught it so early on, like my antibodies were around that 20 um, and 40 mark for the different ones. So that's, that's interesting right there. So um, if you go into like, 
a moldy place or a hotel or anything that's had any type of mold are you a canary are you able to like no start picking up that stuff or (laughs) you've gotten yourself so good that you don't yeah. Have those uh, symptoms anymore. Well, and part of that is that, you know, according to like Dr. Richie Shoemaker's work, that approximately 25% of the population has that um, gene mutation, the HDLR, HDLAR gene mutation that makes them that canary in the coal mine scenario. Like um, there's a great book that I read by a naturopathic doctor that's called like, Is It Mold? And she's one of those people, like she tells a story about stepping off a plane in the Portland airport and there was mold and she instantly started reacting. I was never that way. It was more of a slow build for me. And what happened is that the consistent daily exposure to it eventually just started to wear down my system. Like it clogged my liver, um, mold toxins turn into, they mimic estrogen in the body. So it elevated my estrogens really high. So I was estrogen dominant. And that was causing the weight gain and all the other things to happen, triggered Hashimoto's and those types of things as well. So it was a slow build over from two, at least two years from what I can account, because I had started, it all kind of came crashing down about two years after I started working from home. And I was working in our guest room, which is like two feet away from where the mold was, basically. And I have no idea how long it was there for, but that's kind of the time frame that I can pinpoint it to. Is, uh, is it mold? Is that from Dr. Jill Krista? Yes, or no, it's yes. Karen, actually, Dr. Karen Wright. Karen Wright, okay. Yeah. Perfect. Like looking for the book in here, I tucked away. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, Dr. Jill Chris on episode 107 that she talked a lot about mold, which was really good information for anyone that wants to look more into that. Um, so now, one of the things you've mentioned is uh, working on people's guts. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you've also... Uh, given some hints that there's some blood markers that could give ideas about gut health. Do you, can you share what some of those markers might be? Yeah. So lymphocytes, monocytes, and leukocytes are things that you can get tested on a uh, comprehensive blood panel. And those can be indications for um, parasites and bacteria overgrowth if they're elevated. Also, there are some correlations with other Um, markers as well uh, on there that might indicate things like hypochloridia or poor digestive power, essentially. So when we're seeing a downregulation in digestion um, or digestive capabilities, then that can be also a clue that there's probably some type of pathogen or gut bug that's impacting that as well. Perfect. Um, And then Let's see. Is there any other things that you really want to touch on and make sure that we go over when it comes to running blood tests? I would just say... Or just testing in general. Yeah. I mean, I just say that we have to be our own best advocates. And just going back to the concept that I was talking about earlier is that you know, if you're, if you're running tests and you're being told that everything looks perfect, I would, one, either question the type of test that you're running. Like, is it really giving you all the clues? Um, you know, Reed Davis, the founder of FDN, like he explained it so well once he's like, think of like being a health detective, you know, would a detective go into a house, a crime scene and like research the addict in the basement, but not look in the living room. So think of testing in that kind of way is that there are a variety of tests that you can do, and they're all going to give you a different angle on the crime scene. And maybe you just need more clues to help you figure out what's going on. So one, like, you know, question the type of testing that you're doing and is it giving you all the clues? And two, question the interpretation 
of it as well. Um, as we talked about, like with the difference in the functional ranges, that can make a big difference is how you're reading the test results and how you're utilizing that information then to evaluate your health status. Perfect. And then um, do you have any specific markers that you absolutely love that provide the most information for you? So one of my absolute favorite tests is called the Dutch test. Um, Dutch stands for dried urine total comprehensive test. And it is a urine test that is used to evaluate uh, cortisol, like we talked about earlier. So you get to look at metabolized cortisol, cortisol rhythm, um, some of the other steroid hormones like DHAS and testosterone. It also looks at progesterone and it looks at estrogen, but it looks at three different estrogens. So on a blood test, you typically only get two estrogens. This one, you get three. And then on top of that, it looks at estrogen metabolism and methylation. Um, so with that, you can gleam a lot of information all from one test. So you know, if you were to ask me, what is the one test you would run with every client, it would always be a Dutch test. And if I got to pick two, it would be a stool sample test to go along with that. From a Dutch test, we can get indicators about thyroid function, insulin resistance, um, the hormone balance, circadian rhythm, sleep issues, the Dutch test, you know, based on what's going on in the cortisol rhythm, that can also give us clues about gut bugs. Like if cortisol is elevated at nighttime, specifically, that's a really strong correlation with that. So there's like such a big picture that we can get from there. And then with that test, they also run some other nutritional markers like B12, B6, and glutathione, as well as looking at a couple of the neurotransmitters, and then melatonin and oxidative stress. So with those, we can get even more insights about digestion specifically, digestive health, that can lead us back to again, running that stool sample test, but also areas of opportunity to support the body if they're deficient in some of those really essential vitamins and minerals and nutrients, especially glutathione, which is a uh, master antioxidant. So that would be be like my number one like primo test that I would say everybody pretty much probably should run. And then my final question for you is there is is there anything that you do every single day to uh, just improve your overall wellness? Does it have to be one thing? <laughs> nope. It can be whatever routine you follow. I mean, over time, I really have established a very supportive like daily routine. And this is what I help clients work to work to get to also. And, and this has been a, a work in progress, right? So there are some things within my routine that I would say are pretty critical. Um, one is definitely making sure that I get some type of physical activity, particularly outside fresh air, physical activity in the morning time, um, doing your exercise activity in the morning time. And if you can um, partner that with also like some type of sun or light exposure that helps to balance your circadian rhythm. It's going to help you to sleep and just feel better throughout the day. Uh, meditation has been really crucial in my healing process as well too. It's something that I resisted really hard in the beginning. And now I actually meditate once a day, if not twice a day, most days, um, it's like emptying out, you know, the trash every single day from your brain and just what's been going on with the day. And I could talk about food and all those things, but I think, you know, people know those things. So the other thing that I think is a little bit nuanced that is like so near and dear to me is my sleep. Like being asleep by 10 p.m. 
is a game changer. And people don't really recognize this, but according to our circadian rhythm and the sun and the moon cycle, this literally, like if you're not doing this right now, it will make you feel leaps and bounds better um, in your health. And so I am very protective about my sleep. Like my, I wear the, I do the aura ring. I don't know if anybody's an aura ring fan, but uh, my aura ring will start telling me at like 645 that I need to start preparing for bed because <laughs> I just, it recognizes that I do better when I go to sleep earlier. So I'm definitely asleep by 10 PM. I would say every single night of the week. Um, sometimes it's as early as like nine or nine thirty, And, you know, of course we all have those special occasions like a celebration. So I love to go to Vegas at least once a year. So sometimes I stay out late dancing, <laughs> but I feel wrecked the next day. And sometimes I sacrifice my sleep for those good times. But other than that, like sleep is so critical. And I tell people that I think we need to learn to value sleep more than we value diet and exercise because if you're not sleeping well, then it's basically canceling out your diet and exercise efforts. And so you really need to get a handle on that and it'll help you just, you know, move forward, whether it's performance-based or healing-based, whatever you're trying to achieve. So if you're getting to sleep by 10, what time are you waking up or how many hours typically do you get of sleep? Um, so I typically wake up routinely quarter to six, like during the week for getting my work day done. And on the weekends when I quote unquote, let myself sleep in, it's like 6.30. So I'm, that's one of the interesting things is that when you actually start sleeping according to your circadian rhythm and the sun and the moon cycles, your body's meant to wake up when the sun rises. So when the sun rises and light and temperature increases, that actually signals your body to release cortisol, which is what gives you energy to get up in the morning. So I, if the sun is up, I'm up and it doesn't matter what time zone I'm in. Like my body gets so in tune with that sun cycle that's going on. The only time that I ever could probably sleep in past the sunrise is if I'm like in a Vegas hotel room with like those really intense, like, you know, blackout curtains that they have <laughs> right. where you just don't even know that the sun exists. Right. Cause you're out dancing too late. But um, yeah, otherwise if it's light outside, I'm up pretty much. So, yeah, that's a little easier to do down where you are up here in the winter time. You know, the sun won't come out till like nine o'clock in the morning or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's harder to, you know, just stick uh, with the sun cycles during that period. But uh, when we do backpacking trips, we're up when the sun comes up and we're asleep once the sun goes down. So exactly. it's, it's amazing too. So you feel great doing that. I have a little hack for people in like the more Northern hemisphere like you. Um, Cause we get, that kind of happens in the winter time for me too. When the days are just shorter, I have a little salt lamp that sits next to my bed and I have like a timer um, plug on it. So I actually set the timer. So that the salt lamp will turn on a few minutes before I set my alarm to go up. So it gives me some of that light exposure and kind of tricks my body into thinking that the sun is up and that makes it a little bit easier. Oh, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. I like that. A little hack for you. Yeah, perfect. And then with the aura ring, I know this is off topic, but um, I've always wondered wearing that with exercise. Do you wear it during exercise and does um, using weights and stuff beat it up? Um, so I tend to take it off when I'm lifting because I do a lot of kettlebell work. So kettlebell swings, it just like it does grind into my palm and I don't want to break it. It's a little bit of an expensive device to replace, you know. 
So I do take it off, but I wear it when I run. I wear it like swimming or anything like that that I'm doing. If I'm doing body weight exercises, of course, I wear it. If I'm doing more TRX work, it's just direct, you know, like barbell, dumbbell, kettlebell um, contact with it, which is where I usually take it off. Right. Perfect. Uh, well, people can find out more about you at holistichealthboss.com. Can you talk about what they'll find in uh what type of stuff are you talking about over there? Yeah, so I've got a great blog over there. I tend to put out a blog every Thursday with all kinds of tips and resources and information like what we've been talking about today. Um, I also have a free 21-day program to explore why you might be feeling fat, sick, or sick and tired all the time. So in week one, we dive a little bit more into like macronutrient balance, like what are your ratios of protein, carbs, and fats look like and how do you perfect that for your body? And then week two, it's diving into the some of the sleep concepts that we talked about today. And week three is doing some self-assessments to see if gut bugs, parasites, and bacteria and yeast overgrowth might be getting in the way of you feeling like your best self um, with some tips and resources for next steps with that too. And then I'm also super active over on Instagram at Holistic Health Boss. Um, so that's another great way to connect with me and find me or even on Facebook um, at Holistic Health Boss too. Perfect. Well, thank you, Jen, so much for coming on and talking about uh, lab tests. I know a lot of people, they have questions about them, which is why this is perfect because I mean, we covered a lot. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. It's great to chat with you. As you can see, there is much more to lab work than what is typically tested. And there is a big difference between a clinical diagnosis and feeling optimal. Hopefully this information will help you out to find deeper solutions to any health issues you may be experiencing. And if this show is helpful, then please drop us a quick rating on your podcast player. It really helps to keep this show alive. Next week, I have Jonathan Jarodsky on the show. So let's go learn who he is. I am here with Jonathan Jarodsky. Hey, Jonathan, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? I'd say that I'm, a, I'm an Eagle Scout, and that really has shaped my, my career and my life. And what will we be learning about in our interview together? We're going to be talking about uh, the National Park Service um, and why national parks work are around and how to minimize our impacts when we visit national parks or wilderness areas. And what is one of your favorite foods that you can find when you're exploring the outdoors? Oh, huckleberries, for sure. Those are nature's candy. They're super tasty. They're so good. <laughs> and uh, can you share what is one of your favorite backpacking experiences that you've ever had? Oh, man, there's so many. Um, well, this one's not backpacking, but uh, I did a, a six-day uh, rafting trip with my friends in the River of No Return, the Mill Fork of the Salmon River in, in Idaho. And that was just a blast. There is like a hot spring and some really fun rapids. And I didn't have to carry any of my equipment on my back. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why do I backpack when I can just be boating and floating with all of my gear? But that was super special. That was a lot of fun. For those who like to get out into the outdoors, next week's episode will be a good one for you. So until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.